from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. And here we are back at it after much needed time off. Listeners, welcome back and thank you for coming back for another episode of Tales of the Tribunal. I missed y'all and we have an action-packed second half of the season for you. Thanks for letting me recharge my batteries for the last couple of weeks. But before we get into it, we have a few announcements for you. First, there is a fireside chat hosted by the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators North America branch. This edition is an interview with construction arbitrator Albert Bates Jr. Albert has decades of experience in the field of construction disputes, both as counsel and as arbitrator, and will share some practical insights across his storied career. The talk is on September 21st, and he'll be interviewed by <laughs> yours truly. Registration will be available on the Chartered Institute's website. We'll include a link in the show notes. You won't want to miss it. Then, also mark your calendars for the ninth edition of CAMCCBC Arbitrations Congress down in Brazil, which is just a month away on October 17th and 18th in Sao Paulo. The Congress aims to encourage the exchange of experience between professionals of different nationalities and to stimulate debate between various agents of international arbitration and to discuss the challenges faced in arbitration today and emerging in the near future. TOT is proud to be a supporting organization for this event and I hope the Team TOT will attend either live or online. Alright, let's jump in to this week's episode. This week is an exciting episode as we head into the metaverse. Now I understand that might sound like the next entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it relates to the next version of the internet that we all know and love, and in particular, how that technology overlaps with the world of dispute resolution. To discuss that topic, as well as her background, and how she got involved with this exciting area is Elizabeth, AKA Lizzie Chan. Lizzie is a longtime friend of the show, and we're glad to finally have her in the digital studio. In addition to talking about her background, she'll also give some insights into an exciting new initiative that she launched earlier this year. For those of you that speak Putanwa or Mandarin, Zhongwen. So sit back, strap on your augmented reality glasses, and enjoy my conversation with Lizzie Chan. And we'll see you after the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from the wide, wide world or digital world of international law and dispute resolution. And why did I make an amendment, a, an adjustment to my usual read in there? Because that's exactly what we're talking about today. And well, look, before I tell you that, I should tell you our guest for today is none other than the digital tech wizard herself, Miss Elizabeth Chan. For those that know her, Lizzie Chan. Lizzie is with us in the digital studio. And well, Lizzie, welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much, Chris. I'm so excited to be here. Great, and we're glad to have you here. And look, we have a, a full list of things that we want to talk about. Um, as I teased out just a moment ago, we're going to talk about uh, the metaverse and digital technologies as it comes to dispute resolution stuff. But before we get into that, I'm going to start with that question that we ask all of our listeners or ask all of our guests when they come on the show. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? My name is Lizzie Chan. I'm a wife and a mom to a 17-month-old. I work as a senior registered foreign lawyer at Allen Overy in Hong Kong in the Asia-Pacific arbitration team. Where am I from? A place that I love. I was born in Hong Kong and I grew up in New Zealand when I was about five. And I spent some time in overseas as well, in Hong Kong, in New York and London. And then I returned to Hong Kong a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. Okay. Well, very good. And so, so you're in Hong Kong now, is that right? That's right. Okay. And well, you know, I, I'm always curious in this answer too. Did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer, especially a disputes lawyer? How did that sort of conversation evolve? From the very beginning, I was involved in Model United Nations at school and I was really interested in the law. And that was a natural direction when I went to university. I really loved my law degree at university. And after that, I found out about a job called being a judge's clerk. And so that was my first foray into dispute resolution. And so I worked at the New Zealand Supreme Court for two years doing legal research for different judges. And thereafter, I wanted to stay in dispute resolution. And so I was looking for a role that would allow me to travel internationally as well as continue to practice as a lawyer. And international arbitration allowed me to do that. Okay. And well, look, okay, so that, that sort of explains a little bit of the origin story of why you wanted to become a lawyer. Uh, let's talk about your early career a little bit. How did you, um, well, one, where did you go to law school and what did you do immediately after law school? What's sort of the path that leads you now to being in Hong Kong? So I went to law school at the University of Auckland. And there I actually studied French and politics as well, as well as law. My first job out of law school was the one I just mentioned, which is being a judge's clerk at the New Zealand Supreme Court. So our job was to help our judges to do legal research. And a lot of the site checking and, and, and the kinds of things that you would expect a tribunal secretary to do as well. Sure, so so you started as a clerk and then after your, after your clerkship, what did you do from there? After my clerkship, I went back to Hong Kong. So that was my first foray into international arbitration. So one Christmas, I went back to Hong Kong to spend time with my family and I made uh, arrangements to meet for coffee with partners and senior associates from different law firms to find out about how to get a job in international arbitration. And at that time, there weren't actually any internship opportunities in Hong Kong. But a couple of months after I had those initial coffees, um, someone from one of the firms that I went to, Herbert Smith Freehills, told me that they were starting an internship program and I was their second ever intern. It's, it's hard to believe now when there are so many arbitration internships offered by different law firms that this was the first program of its kind in Hong Kong. So that's sure. how I, yeah, that was my first foray into national arbitration in Hong Kong. And then I piggybacked off my internship at HSF and worked at the HKIC, the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center as well. Very well, very well. No, I mean, and that's uh, one thing you mentioned there that is really important. It's something we talk about a lot on the show and uh, anyone that's more junior or just coming out that has talked to me about it knows that I, I, what I tell them is 
you got to get out there, go meet people, just talk. And, you know, everyone remembers what it was like trying to find your way into arbitration. So most folks are glad to have a, a chat to say, hey, go talk to people. Here's how you find opportunities. Um, and here's how you sort of break your way in. I definitely agree with that. And want to thank you as well for the opportunity to be part of your show and to meet with audience who might be interested in the personal journey that I've had at international arbitration and some of the tech that I've done and work, some of the work I've done in tech as well. Well, sure. No. And look, we're going to dive into that just here in a few moments. Um, so, okay. So that's a little bit of your backstory, how you got um, to, to, to where you are now in Hong Kong and into the practice area. What type of work do you do um, in, your, in your current capacity? Is it mostly commercial? Is it investment? Something in between? Yeah, I think I can answer that question um, in, in the context of the longer career that I've had at international arbitration at different law firms and my practice has evolved. So I'm a pure, I practice in pure international arbitration and I started my international arbitration career, as I mentioned, at Herberts with Freehills in Hong Kong, but I then rejoined the firm in their New York office for nine months after I did my LLM at Yale. And thereafter, I was at Three Crowns for a little over five years. And then I joined Alan Overy this February. So that, that gives you a bit of an idea of, of my, my journey. And I've, I've worked in different practices. And I'm, I'm sure you're aware um, every firm has a slightly different practice. But I can say that in general, I have done both international commercial arbitration and international investment treaty work. And over the past couple of years, it's probably been half and half. Um, I've represented both states and investors in a couple of different regions, but probably principally in the Middle East in the last couple of years and more and more in the Asia region. And one of the reasons for coming back to Hong Kong as well is to grow my Asia facing practice, particularly in Hong Kong and China. Well, that's right. And um, well, look, there's there's more, even more stuff that we'll touch on there. But but listeners, uh, you know, Lizzie is, is so humble. She's not going to mention at the top that she also like founded an initiative for Mandarin speakers in Asia as part of a, I think, a true sort of uh, feather in the cap of someone trying to, 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 to have an Asia-facing practice. Yes, thanks for mentioning this. It's called Xialong, or Mandarin Arbitration Salon. And the reason for creating it was to create opportunities to use Mandarin language in a professional context. I think there are a lot of us who are learning Mandarin and who want or and have reached a level where we feel confident about using it in a group context and really wanting to improve our vocabulary. So I started this group. So uh, the idea is that we we meet regularly and then we have and we've talked about all kinds of different topics, for example, on interim measures and international arbitration or recent amendments to Chinese arbitration law or the enforcement of English awards in China. So a real range. And what I found is that the groups attracted both Mandarin learners and lovers, but also native speakers. So I found that quite a lot of native speakers have also said that they don't necessarily have the opportunity to use their Mandarin in a legal context or at least to plead or to provide a presentation. And I really think that uh, language is a key to understanding another culture. And I feel that, you know, if I, um, I have a good mastery of Mandarin, that will really open a lot of doors in international arbitration. 
the other thing that I wanted to mention as well is that this has proven to be this wonderful opportunity to meet so many people that I think I wouldn't otherwise have met. So I actually participated in my first Mandarin language panel on Thursday, and it was wonderful to have you know, several attendees from the webinar add me on WeChat and let you know we continued the conversation that we had about how to build a Korean international arbitration. And what I also want to do is to make a lot of the information that's available in English language also available in Mandarin, particularly to support young people who are trying to break into the field. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that that's a huge, uh, there's so many important threads that you've mentioned there, but I think the biggest one is that is sort of building that two-way street when it comes to international practice that you know might be more common in English but needs to be expanded to include an on-ramp for Mandarin speakers and frankly not even for Mandarin speakers that can also speak English but just for those that can operate natively and naturally in Mandarin because well frankly there's a lot of business and a lot of opportunities in that space. Absolutely and I think the need for bilingual counsel as well as arbitrators is only going to increase as we're seeing more and more business in, in China and also internationally. It's also a wonderful language and wonderful culture. I agree. And well, it's a perfect excuse for me to say to, to my employer one day, well, look, you know, I got to like, you know, an okay HSK level when I was in uh, Tsinghua, but you know, you should send me back. You know, then we have more and more work. We need to go back at this point, uh, but that, that's so cool. Um, and, and kudos to you and your colleagues for getting that done, Lizzie. You know, one more thing that I guess I would ask, and actually, um, well, you know, no, let's let's do this. Why don't we go straight into the tech topics, and we'll come back to your extracurriculars because there's a, a lot of really interesting stuff to to carry there. So, you know, as we said at the top, and as you know, we've you will have seen in the marketing for the listeners at home, uh, today's conversation sort of goes right into a big topic that's gotten more and more popular over the last uh, year, couple of years, few years. I I won't say exactly how long, but at least. It's become more popular recently. And that is the topic of the metaverse, which, you know, might sound like the, the latest level in League of Legends or some sort of video game or something. But it's something that is becoming more and more a part of our commercial and daily lives. But maybe at the outset, Lizzie, there's a very basic question. What in the world is the metaverse? I think a good way to understand the metaverse is to describe it as the Internet in 3D and that it is part of an up and coming generation of the internet that is based on many things, but including decentralization, the idea that no one actor owns the internet, but it's owned and governed or controlled by many. I would also say that the metaverse is not actually a new concept. The idea that you can participate simultaneously and this virtual reality environment has existed for a very long time, especially in computer games. So I think at least like the early 1990s and certainly this concept of the metaverse is definitely not a new one. But I think that recently it's become uh, very much a, a, a word in the mainstream. I think that was partly because of the decision by Facebook to change its name to Meta and put a lot of investment into developing the metaverse. I should mention as well that that Meta has actually rode back from some of that investment in the metaverse and that certainly um, it is very much an area that is developing. I suppose from my personal point of view, 
how I got interested in the metaverse is really through that virtual reality interaction. So my husband already owned a pair of Oculus goggles and that he was using and he was like, this is so cool, you've got to try it. Uh, and I remember seeing him wearing these goggles and then like making these motions with his hands like, and having no idea what he was doing. And I remember the first time I put on these goggles, when you set up the program, you use a controller to, to pick up a paper airplane. Of course, it's not an actual paper airplane. It's code made of zeros and ones. But the but but what astounded me was that I could pick it up and then I could fly it just like I would with a real paper airplane. And I was impressed by how good the technology was. And then the next step for me was I just really wanted to share it with other people. And I remember uh, attending my first meeting in Horizon Workrooms with my husband and he was attending as an avatar. And I was just really amazed by how much that avatar looked like him in, in terms of its facial expressions and hand gestures. And I wanted to share that with other people and I got very excited. So back in January, I set up the first ever arbitral, uh, arbitration gathering for arbitration practitioners in the metaverse. And there were a couple of people who joined, joined me around a table. And since then, I've been involved in a couple of different initiatives, including the biggest one was holding a conference in the metaverse again in uh, Horizon Workrooms where we had 16 avatars around a table, as well as hundreds of other people who actually attended by video link. Yes. And well, look, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> I think that that's all extremely fascinating. And I wanna, I guess, explore that a little bit further, especially those last two events that you talked about, the one for arbitration specifically, and then the, the, the largest one that you referred to as well. When you say that, you know, people joined by video link, so that means that they joined not in the metaverse, but like watching watching everyone else in the video. Is that what that means? Or how, how exactly do you mean? Yes, exactly. So at least in Horizon Workrooms, which is an application that you can use when you've got your Oculus goggles on, you have a meeting room, much like you would have in any office space, and you will have people around a table, and then you'll see a screen of people who might be joining by Zoom, for example. And those who join by video link will see a screen much like you would on Zoom and then the avatars would see them on a screen like in a conference room. Um, I would say that the the most fun experience is when you're there as an avatar. I, I went to this wonderful um, young Ica meet the mentors opportunity event which was organized by Crystal Baptista and Emily Hay and it was an interview with Tony Landau QC and Dana McGrath and it was wonderful uh, to you know to sit right next to them when having that interview and I yeah that that kind of like you know up close opportunity would be quite rare in person I think yeah and well okay so let's let's uh you know we could probably spend the whole hour talking about uh the, the metaverse in particular people want to find out more about the metaverse, where, where can they do that? And what, what, what's capable of? Yes, I would highly recommend reading the commentary that has been written by Matthew Ball. He's an investor and commentator, and he's been writing about the metaverse for a long time. I'm actually quite excited about reading his book, which comes out, I think, in two days. Oh, wow. Which will, I think will give a really good overview of the metaverse and some of the challenges that it presents. I would say that 
no, it's not like we're all off to live in the metaverse and live in this virtual reality right now. There's actually a lot of technical challenges as well, and including the interoperability of different metaverse platforms, for example. You know, to, to, to put it in a concrete way, it's like if you bought a pair of sneakers or Nike shoes, for example, on one metaverse platform, would you be able to bring that pair of sneakers when you're in a different virtual world. So there's still quite a lot of difficult um, technical issues to be worked out in the metaverse. I think that would be a good place to start. And, and I think it's important as well to see the metaverse in the context of the digital world more generally. Um, and by which I mean, you know, there's so many different ways in, in which we can learn about the technological world. There's, for example, semiconductors that enable us to you know, have this very conversation by having you know, a computer, a, um, a computer screen and a, a laptop and a phone. We can talk about, you know, how there are many companies that are monetizing our attention. We can think about the use of cryptocurrencies, for example, and currently, you know, there's a lot of news about uh, the in instability um, of, of cryptocurrencies. So, and there, there's been like a number of court cases, for example, regarding non-fungible tokens and other technologies which are based on the blockchain. All is to say, if you want to learn about the metaverse, my recommendation is be interested in technology more generally and then figure out what you're interested in. And, um, and another good way to learn about the metaverse as well is to sign up to newsletters that you'll find interesting. Uh, use Google Alerts to, and use keywords and you might also be interested in joining Metaverse Legal, which is an organization or uh, a how, how do I call it? a decentralized community that was created by one of my colleagues at ANO, where there are a number of lawyers who are working together to explore issues involving the Metaverse together. Okay, okay, and I, I want to pick up on one of those threads that you just mentioned um, a second ago. Um, so, well, you and I are disputes lawyers, and a lot of the folks listening are, are work in the realm of disputes. Where, how does the metaverse intersect with the world of disputes? Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts there. Hmm. That's a good question. And as far as I'm aware, that there haven't been many, if any, commercial cases that have arisen directly in relation to the metaverse. I'm aware of at least one case involving um, and an IP claim where there was one law firm who claimed uh, who used the name metaverse law and the other side of claiming that uh, that that term is too generic in general uh, hmm. for a, to to claim IP over it. But what we have seen is that there have been a lot of court cases around, you know, what we might describe as the building blocks of the metaverse. So, for example, non-fungible tokens. So Hermes brought a case, for example, against an individual artist who created NFTs based on Hermes's line of fashion bags or physical fashion bags. The Nike brought a claim against StockX, a resell of Nike products, which created NFTs based on Nike's physical shoes. So we've actually seen a number of court cases around NFTs. There have been a number of cases around cryptocurrencies as well. Um, and, you know, there have been some class-style action, uh, class-style actions that have been brought in international arbitration as well. For example, at the HKIC, 
So some of these have been reported on GAR as well. So these are, so I, I'm not, I, I don't think we've necessarily seen disputes arising directly out of the metaverse, but there's certainly been court cases and other legal proceedings involving technology that may be used in the metaverse or in relation to it. Sure, so like metaverse adjacent sort of cases. Yes, yeah, the metaverse okay. adjacent, yeah. Okay, um, let's see. Well, I think one of the things that, that I find kind of interesting too, um, and, it, and maybe this is sort of just a follow-up or, or maybe the, 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 the close out of what we were just talking about is that sort of idea of, well, you know, two years ago, everyone was, you know, losing their minds over the fact that we're going to start having a lot more virtual hearings because no one could be in person because of the pandemic. And perhaps one of the middle ground compromises is that everyone starts having metaverse hearings um, because they have that feeling of being in person. I mean, is that something that you think could be coming down the pipe? I think that would be so cool if we had the technological capability to have a full hearing in the metaverse. I don't think that the technology is quite there yet, but I think it would be awesome in the future. And why, why would it be fantastic? Well, first of all, we would not need to travel and we could save a lot of costs that way. And I think for many who haven't yet tried accessing the metaverse or using the virtual reality technology, is actually how good the sense of presence is. What really impressed me about Horizon Workrooms, for example, was sitting around a table feeling like I was really sitting around the table with people and you could even give your the friend next to you a high five and stars would come out. And for example, if somebody is sitting at the other end of the room, the, the voice is literally softer than someone who is sitting next to me and who is much louder. So I, I hope that the technology will continue to improve so that the, the virtual reality space really imitates that, that sense of presence that you, you enjoy in the physical world. I think the second thing that would be great is, could you imagine if we you could design an arbitration space that was exactly as you needed it? You could have exactly the number of hearing rooms that you needed, the exact number of breakout rooms. You could create a hearing room so that had exactly the number of seats that you needed for the number of people that you, were, you needed to accommodate. Um, one of the really interesting points that I've talked to I had a conversation with Dana McGrath about as well is, you know, how the virtual world can enhance accessibility and diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think, you know, that's why Arbitral Women is running a virtual program series now, for example, because we think that that virtual setting is going to is already enabling people from outside of major arbitration hubs to participate in many events that they wouldn't wouldn't otherwise have been able to and you can imagine the same for virtual virtual reality hearings as well including for people who wouldn't be able to travel to a particular place or it wouldn't be easy for them to attend um, a physical hearing so all to say i don't think we're quite there with the technology to have a virtual hearing yet but I think a virtual reality hearing in the future would be really awesome. Yeah, I mean, and then of course there's the fundamental of, as with any new technology, even when the technology gets there, is getting the the users to adopt it and to get comfortable with it, um, such that they would feel comfortable sitting in a, a hearing, uh, doing it in the metaverse or the virtual reality realm as well. 
I, I just wonder in that regard whether, you know, whether we're going to be spending time in the virtual reality world in our personal lives. You know, if, if yeah. it's coming normal to do that, maybe we'll do that for work or maybe we'll do it more for work and then we will do it in our personal lives. I, I don't think virtual reality, you know, just for work or just for virtual hearing, it may very much become a, a, a feature of our everyday lives. Yeah, you know, I, I remember the, these shows uh, growing up. I mean, when we talk about a metaverse, I think you're right. I think that there were versions of this on, on old futuristic shows, um, you know, like Johnny Quest used to have a, a variation of that. And um, shows like Reboot, those are popular in the States um, when I was a kid. Um, and that's exactly what they were. They were basically soft metaverses. And I just wonder if it does become that integrated or even Mega Man. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, if it gets to the point where daily life is that integrated with virtual reality um it's, it's hard to imagine but i guess it was hard to imagine back in the 1910s or 20s that we had the ability to fly from hong kong to new york in like you know a matter of a, a, a day so um I, I think it's all perspective and maybe it's just the sort of thing that over the next the coming decades it does sort of more easily merge and um we kind of look back and say how did we do this before Absolutely. And my, my husband uses the analogy of virtual reality technology being like the iPhone 2. You know, when it first came out, it was quite glitchy. You didn't necessarily have widespread uptake. But, you know, t 10 versions later, so many of us have a smartphone in our pocket. And in fact, we could hardly be anywhere without that smartphone. So, you know, if virtual reality technology continues to improve, maybe it will become very much the norm to use virtual reality to connect with others. Yeah, I mean, kind of like, um, I almost think of it like Google Glass. That, that was like the cool sunglasses that Google had for, I guess, a few years that was supposed to augment reality over your eyes. Um, I think they discontinued it ultimately because they couldn't quite figure out how to get the tech to work. But I think in concept, most people thought that was a pretty cool idea, like the ability to have this sort of extra tech that your eyes could operate and could give you extra interaction with the world, maybe something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, look, no, I, I think that that's really interesting. What I would um, want to continue the conversation with then, um, Lizzie, would be, you know, I understand that you're writing a paper on enforcement issues arising out of the disputes that are resolved by arbitration or by processes um, resembling arbitration. Can you give us any sneak peeks, any uh, sort of glimpse into what you're writing about? Absolutely. I'm writing a paper with Emily Hay, who is Councillor Hanotio and Ben Byrne, who's wonderful and also a fellow administrator at Metaverse Legal on enforcement issues arising um, in relation to Metaverse related disputes. And happily, our abstract was, has just been accepted for the Taipei Mediation Arbitration Conference. And so we'll be presenting on that paper in October. But to give you a sneak peek, um, the, the, the paper is focused on enforcement issues arising under the New York Convention for disputes related to the metaverse that may be resolved by international arbitration or processes resembling arbitration. And by the latter, we are referring to just um, dispute resolution methods such as decentralized justice systems and blockchain arbitration. So ideas you can think of would include Claros, Aragon, or Jure. So what are the, some of the topics that we're going to be looking at? Well, one will be, do you even need um, any 
and like do you even need to engage with any enforcement issues under the New York Convention for example when you have on-chain enforcement so an example would include the UK's digital dispute resolution rules which envisage that the parties may empower the tribunal to modify, cancel, change, transfer, etc., a digital asset. So you may be in a situation where there's no need to resort to a separate proceeding for enforcement because the tribunal will already be able to enforce that decision. Some other examples will include, you know, under the New York Convention, it requires an arbitration agreement that is in writing. So there's a question as to whether, uh, you know, co contracts that are entered into in relation to the metaverse will have an arbitration agreement. No, an area I'm still learning about is smart contracts. I mean, there, it's a little bit of a misnomer because smart contracts are not actually contracts in the legal sense that we understand it. And mm -hmm. there's a difference between smart contracts and smart legal contracts, for example. But one of the issues that we're going to explore is whether, in some of these metaverse-related disputes, whether you're going to have a, a challenge of showing that you have an agreement in writing. A third issue will be the identification of the parties in the metaverse users interact via avatars and, and also users that are using you know, crypto wallets, for example. Uh, so, and I'm aware that there are some international arbitration rules like the digital dispute resolution rule that I mentioned, which allows for anonymity of the parties at, at least vis-a-vis the, vis the parties themselves. So there's a question as to whether some degree of anonymity is going to be acceptable under the New York Convention, particularly where typically courts will require the identification of the parties before they'll hear a case. Um, let me mention just one more one more issue because we, we were going to cover a number in the paper. One will be the legal seat of the proceedings. So on-chain ADR may not necessarily be seated in a particular jurisdiction if it has a seat at all. However, the New York Convention only applies to arbitral awards that are made in the territory of another state. There have been some creative options for addressing this challenge, and in our paper we'll be talking about an on-chain ADR decision that was enforced by some Mexican courts under the New York Convention. So these are some of the issues that we're going to cover in the paper. Yeah, and I guess to that last point, um, if I'm understanding it right, I mean, it's kind of this idea that where awards are issued or decisions are rendered in the context of the metaverse or blockchain could technically exist in a space between states or jurisdictions. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Even on the Internet, obviously, states, state law applies, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, the jurisdiction that the parties may have agreed to under the terms of the agreement may require that an agreement be issued in a certain jurisdiction. And well, I guess if you're having these awards being rendered in the metaverse, is that a technically a different space? Or or maybe maybe I'm asking you to clarify because maybe I didn't understand. Um, uh, um, what, what, what was the thinking or what, what was the uh, the point that you guys are trying to, to flesh out there? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, under the New York Convention, it applies to awards that uh, tied to a particular state. And this idea of territoriality really underpins international arbitration because arbitral awards only 
have uh, or only can be enforced or have legal force because states allow it to be. That's why you have arbitration acts that allow tribunals to have the power to make binding decisions. And the New York Convention is very much based on states agreeing with other states that the arbitral awards rendered in a particular jurisdiction are going to be mutually enforceable. Now, one of the, the questions that arise in, I think, technology-related disputes or, or when you're using certain types of processes where the parties might not indicate that there is a and so what happens if you have that kind of situation where the parties don't refer to any seat at all in their international arbitration and that process takes place entirely online so the question will be say you have an award that is rendered by way of a blockchain protocol mentioning no seat Mm-hmm. If there needs to be some kind of off-chain enforcement, could that award be enforceable? And there's quite an interesting Mexican court decision whereby the parties had agreed that any decision made by way of a blockchain protocol would then be adopted by a tribunal as their award and therefore it would be seated in a particular jurisdiction. So that's quite a creative process for for getting around that seat issue. But we're going to explore that case a little further in the paper and look at whether, you know, that you might envisage any, say, due process problems arising under the New York Convention. No, that's a great great answer. And that's, you you answered exactly what I was getting at. Um, It was that sort of the gap. Oh, very interesting, very fascinating. you know, before we uh, we sort of shift um, again, I, I do want to come back to something that we, we teased again at the beginning where we talked about um, some of your extracurriculars that you're involved with. Um, I know you've mentioned uh, Arbitral Women a bit. You've talked about uh, your Mandarin Learning Initiative. Um, are there any other ones that you want to mention or talk about um, specifically? You, look, and look, I, I ask that as a very loaded question, listeners, because Lizzie is sort of like uh, Mandy or Shvenya or some of these other people we've mentioned on the show or that have been on the show, um, I, I don't know how she finds time. Maybe she has a time turner from Harry Potter or something. But, you know, Lizzie does so much. So, Lizzie, any of those projects that you want to talk about? <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. A couple of um, examples spring to mind. One would be something we worked on together, which is the CPRY80 Corporate Council Interview Series. So I conducted interviews with 25 in-house counsel and ombuds from different countries, different jurisdictions and different companies and industries around the world and spoke with corporate counsel about their attitude towards alternative dispute resolution, conflict prevention, as well as their advice for young practitioners. As an external counsel myself, it was incredibly valuable to speak to corporate counsel like yourself about what corporate counsel are really looking for when they receive work product from external counsel and what are some tips and strategies for building a a collaborative and productive relationship between in-house and external counsel. Something else that I'm really proud to be part of is the Young Arbitral Women Practitioners. So in the last term, I served as a co-director and one of the initiatives that I created was the training workshop series on damages and expert topics. And I have partnered now through Young Arbitral Women Practitioners, as well as another group that I sit on, which is the Equal Representation and Arbitration Pledge, 
Young Practitioners Subcommittee, we have worked together with a number of different expert firms, including Ernst & Young, BRG, Alex Partners, FTI, and others to bring some really fantastic workshop programs for our audience. So some of the things that we've looked at include the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on damages quantification. And another workshop that I really enjoyed was looking at timing issues and quantification in a DCF analysis, including pre-award interest, choice of valuation date and country risk premium. And I really hope that this project has gone some way to support senior practitioners and emerging arbitrators to develop the skills to navigate contested expert opinion and find a way to navigate these issues in a principled way. Uh, one third initiative that I want to mention is Arbitral Women Connect, which is a program run through Arbitral Women that matches our members on a one-on-one -on -one or on a group basis. This was an initiative that I created at the beginning of the pandemic because it was becoming very difficult to meet people face to face. And what I found is that that, that initiative is only become, becoming more and more popular because even as we are moving out of the pandemic, people still wanna meet with each other. And what I love is that people can meet virtually and now that it's become a norm. Like I, I think actually it would be really difficult to do the corporate council interview series or Arbitral Women Connect before it really became normal to use Zoom and these other tools to meet each other. So, you know, I, I think it's wonderful that you and I are meeting through this medium now. I can't wait to meet you in person, Chris, but I think it's wonderful that we've been able to make the most of these virtual opportunities to build connections and build relationships. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I agree, Lizzie. I look forward to, to properly meeting in person one day, though I will say we actually maybe have been in the same room at some point and maybe just not even known it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's quite possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that, that that's a lot of stuff. Um, that you've done and some it sounds like some great initiatives with arbitral women but also um across the field so making sure to 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 advance the field as a whole and some really interesting stuff um any other projects you want to mention i know we, we that was a number that you mentioned there but anything else that you want to mention before we uh sort of shift again some other things that i've really enjoyed being part of include being part of the young eka mentoring program have you been part of that chris um, no, not yet. I did Young Ita some years ago, um, their mentoring program, but no, I've actually never done Young Ita's mentoring program, either as a mentor or a mentee. It's a fantastic program for students and young practitioners. And what they do is I think each cycle, which is every two years, they have uh, about 20 different groups of mentees, group advisors, and mentors. So in my group, we have four wonderful mentees. I act as the group advisor, and our mentor is Lee June. And what's really great is that, you know, we create this pod, and we can get to know each other and to support each other in arbitration-related initiatives. So my, I joined as a group advisor this year, and my mentees have created this wonderful program called Arb Chat. Please check it out on LinkedIn where my yes. mentees were interviewing different practitioners. So, you know, not, not unlike what you do with Tales of the Tribunal, Chris. And for my part, I'm through the Young Echo program, I'm developing something new as well called Chinese Arbitration Conversations. So it's somewhat similar to the Mandarin Arbitration Salon series, except that this time it's more like the fire chat set, uh, fireside chats 
that we've seen online where we talk to leading practitioners and just hear a little bit more about their background and what they're doing and their advice for young practitioners. So this will be in Mandarin language as well. Um, yeah. Uh, two other I wanted to mention was one I'm involved in the ICC task force on disabilities inclusion and international arbitration disabilities particularly in relation to mental health and also learning disability issues is something that's really important to me and it's been very valuable to be part of the ICC task force uh, on 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 these issues so at the moment we're looking at you know how to explain concepts of uh, disabilities we've been looking at this concept of reasonable accommodation which means that uh, you know, what are some reasonable accommodations that we should make in light of any particular disabilities or, or requirements by participants in an international arbitration. So please watch this space for when the ICC task force develops a report. The last thing I wanted to mention is something that you've just featured on Tales of the Tribunal, which is arbitration lunch match. This wonderful brainchild of Lisa Reiser and Ureke Gettenberg. And this is basically a blind date for lunch in your home jurisdiction, where we match groups of up to five women for a lunch, and you don't know who you're going to have lunch with until you turn up. I've been fortunate to be one of the co-organizers of Arbitration Lunch Match here in Hong Kong, and we've had, I think, almost 100 women participate in our in the two cycles of arbitration lunch match that we've done. And it's just a wonderful way to bring together the international arbitration community and to meet other women in, in our locality um, and also to do it in person. Absolutely. No, um, that you rightly mentioned that, that that's been a huge uh, success as far as I can tell. And I, I think it's only going to grow um, as people uh, put the pandemic in the rearview mirror and as you know we go back to meeting in person so that that's that's been a huge uh development i look forward to watching it and also i had no idea that you were in somewhat involved with uh our chat yeah we just shouted them out last week on on the show and uh, on our on our social medias so yeah that that's a really cool initiative um we'll have to to, to continue to support them there and finally i would say um that was uh to, to the things that you just mentioned back when tales of the tribunal was just starting and we were trying to imagine how the show would be conducted. Um, it was a, there was a distant fantasy of wanting to have the show not only in English, but have like versions of it in Spanish and Mandarin. So if you're gonna do something that's similar in Mandarin, maybe we need to like partner up and figure out a way we can uh, you know go in collaborative ways with it because I think that's so cool. That's a really great initiative. That would be awesome. I'd love to work together. Okay, well look, um, our time together is rapidly running to the end. I wanna get to some speed round questions, um, a little bit of getting to know you here. So let's shift just a little bit. Um, one of the questions I'd love to hear from folks and uh, I ask it intentionally as open-ended as you'd like, excuse me, is um, over the course of your career, have there been any sort of guiding forces, role models, influences, anything that you can think of that you wanna mention here? Absolutely, and there are many people who have been very important to me throughout my arbitration career, and I don't think I could mention all of them in one place, but there are some people that I want to shout out to. My time in Hong Kong, as I mentioned at the beginning, was really formative for me, and during that time, I was lucky to meet Xian Bao and Brianna Young and Rustak Pumor, who have become wonderful friends and mentors. 
I mentioned also that I joined Arbitral Women. I was I joined the board for the first time in 2020, and being part of that group has been a very meaningful experience. And in that regard, I want to shout out to Mandy Lee, who hey. you've mentioned before, Dana McGrath, Louise Woods, Rebecca Mascara, Kate Corby. They're all wonderful women I've met through Arbitral Women. I want to shout out to the ERA pledge as well, in particular my good friend Magdalene de Rougier. A shout out as well to my colleagues at ANO, our partners, Matthew Hodgson and Joanne Lau, and also my colleague Jay Heeser. It's too hard to name everybody, and I would definitely include you on the list as well, Chris. Oh. I should mention as well, um, I was lucky enough to win a conversation through Arbitration Idol. Ah, okay. Who was your conversation with? Mohammed Wahab. Ah, yes, 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 Muhammad. Well, look, we got to get Muhammad on the show sometime, too, you know, at some point in the future, perhaps. Um, that, that, that must have been a lot of fun. I bet that was a good conversation. It was so awesome. I loved that idea, and it was great that it was for charity as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, people have asked us about Arbitration Idol for this year. And, well, given all the things going on in the world right now, we said uh, we, we'll take a little hiatus and come back to it shortly because uh, we think it was a great initiative. But um, we thought there were more. Um, sort of uh, more timely things to focus on for right now. Okay, very well, very well. Um, and well, look, let's uh, let's keep it rolling right along. What's on your bookshelf? What are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading a book called Hou Gong Zhen Huan Zhuan, which is a Chinese novel about imperial Chinese palace intrigue among the emperor's concubines. That's been great for learning my Mandarin, and I'm looking forward also to downloading Matthew Ball's um, new book on the metaverse. Sure, 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 sure. And how about music? What's some of the music that you're into? Who are some of your favorite artists? These are oldies, but I think they're goodies. I really love Savage Garden. I've, I love the music for many years. Okay. Played them at my well. Oh, wow. Very cool. Very cool. Um, let's say, okay, so it's important to mention this here as well. You, you talk, we've talked a number of times about all the things that you do to stay busy, that you have a lot going on. Um, that's surely demanding on your time and probably your mental health as well. How do you maintain that physical and mental uh, well-being? I think it's very important to take an active approach to looking after your physical and mental health. What those steps will look like will be different for everyone. And for me, what's really important as well as having a wonderful marriage with my husband and always having open communications with him and that we're working together to raise our child and also very much building a village, both with our, my in-laws and with my parents and my brother. You know, it's, it's that village that really sustains me and is really important to both my physical and mental health. Okay, no, I think that that's huge and that's important um, to make time for those things that really matter uh, and to keep perspective that we can't work all the time. Um, Let's see. All right. I, I, I love this question, too. Uh, let's say you're approached by a current student or recent graduate, someone that's you know looking to break into the field. This is something we got to talk about earlier and wanting to know, how do I break into international law, international arbitration? What advice would you give them? Lizzie? There are many things that you can do, but a good place to start would be to play to your strengths. Think about what they are. Maybe it's a language skill. Maybe it's some substantive knowledge. Maybe it's your academic grades, whatever it is. Have a think about that and also do what excites you. 
And something else that is a fantastic resource is Mandy Leaf Careers and Arbitration. If you don't follow them already, do so now. It's a great way to find out about opportunities in international arbitration. That's absolutely true. Um, I, I second that uh, again. Um, okay, here's a fun one. Let's say that it's 5 p.m. on a Friday and you are somehow completely free for the weekend. You can wave a wand, do whatever you want. How would you spend that uh, completely free weekend? That's an easy one. My husband and I would take our son to the beach. 5 p.m. is the perfect time to go to the beach because it's not as hot and the water is really warm and the summer weather is beautiful at the moment. See, I like to go in the middle. I like to go maybe just before lunch or maybe a little bit after the peak of the day. Get, get my summer color going. You know, I got to work on my tan. No, that sounds like a great weekend. Um, that sounds like a, a fun time at the beach and good food and some good family time. Um, okay. Well, look, uh, Lizzie, before we get out of here, I know we've had many a shout out throughout this episode. Do you have um, anyone else you want to shout out to? Um, friends, colleagues, mentors, mentees, anything before uh, we, we start to wrap it up here? A shout out to my amazing husband, Graham Rhodes. Of course. Fantastic. And look, I'm going to echo um, all the other shout outs we gave earlier in the show. And um, and actually, look, they were just on the show, but I'm going to shout out to Lisa and Oriki, too, as well, uh, for, for being great guests and uh, being part of this uh, starting this arbitration lunch match. Lizzie, thank you so much for coming by the digital studio. I know that we were playing a little bit of a calendar tag, trying to find time to fit in each of our respective calendars. Uh, but I hope that you're having a great summer. And uh, thanks again for coming by the studio. Thank you so much, Chris. Well, so as it always happens, the time has gone extremely fast, too fast, in fact. Lizzie, we appreciate you coming by the show. Thanks for making time. And well, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. And this, I'm sure this won't be the only time we'll have to have you back on another occasion. You want to sign us off? I'd love to. I'm Lizzie Chan, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. Listeners, what did I tell you? That was an interesting episode, right? I could practically see the future flashing past my eyes as Lizzie was talking. It's exciting to hear all the possibilities and things to come from the metaverse and Web3. Now I'll admit, while I'm a bit on the fence about what can be done in the short term and seeing some of the practical uses of this technology, I do see some utility and I'm thankful to Lizzie for coming by and sharing some of the cool things that are going on in the field. This is a developing area and if you want to be part of one of the hottest topics in the field right now, this is a great place to start. That's it for this week. And I must say before we get out of here, I hate that I will be missing many of you who will be listening, perhaps on your way to the Edinburgh long-awaited ICA Congress. There are a slew of great events that I've been hearing about, including a game show of sorts and a lot of great content um, in terms of the programming that the organizers have put together. However, I'm out on location securing our final interviews of season four, so I'll have to miss out this time. But I'm having one last adventure before the year is out, a place I'll reveal perhaps next week. So stay tuned for that. Tales of the Tribunal is brought to you by Mo Beta Solutions. Show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Disputes Digest is back this weekend, and, well, that's it for this week. This has been Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality.
None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.